You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Good morning, friends. Uh, this morning we encounter uh, a certain kind of language that's presented and introduced in the Psalms. We've been going through this Psalm series for about 15 weeks, and here we're presented with a new language we haven't seen yet. There's so many different kinds of languages. When you think of language, we often think of spoken language. But I don't mean just different kind of spoken languages like French, English, Spanish, Korean. There's body language. There's ways we communicate with our body. Uh, there's love language. You've heard of the five love languages. There's sign language. Uh, there's computer languages. Language is simply just a, a system of communication to lay before other people um, what's in our mind, what's on our heart. Psalm 88 identifies a very important yet underutilized language that we can call the language of lament. The language of lament. Lament is the communication of our grief, our sorrow, our pain, and our suffering. And I would argue that this important language is so underutilized, yet it would do us so well to regain this language in our vocabulary. To learn how to speak the language of lament for people who follow God. To communicate our grief. But you understand why we don't do it. It's, it's uncomfortable, right? It's unfamiliar to us. We understand why this isn't a part of our normal language with God. Uh, we're simply unfamiliar with it. We live in a culture that expresses prosperity as a, as a result of God's favor and love and affection for us. Therefore, misunderstanding um, pain and suffering is rampant in our life. If a Christian suffers, then how close can God really be to you? If you're going through a hard time, then maybe God has closed his ear to you. Maybe he's not paying attention. Maybe, worst of all, maybe he doesn't care about you if you're suffering. You know, Jesus was a pretty amazing Christian. We could argue that. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was the best. He did nothing wrong, and yet he suffered and experienced pain and betrayal and sadness and sorrow more than anyone who's ever lived. A third of the Psalms are prayers of lament. We've been looking at trying to get language for communicating with God, and of the 150 Psalms, a third of them are prayers of sorrow and lament. It's a key aspect of the life of God's people, but it's just so foreign to our worldview. So that's the first reason it's difficult to pray these prayers and to express our sadness. It's just unfamiliar. Another is it's really uncomfortable. We don't like doing that. How many of you have shared an intense emotion or sadness or grief or sorrow with someone, began to cry kind of uncontrollably, and then very quickly apologized for crying? Do you do that? How many of you apologize for apologizing for crying? I'm so sorry for crying. I'm so sorry for saying I'm so sorry all the time. We have this impulse need of like, I just, I feel like it's just undignified for me to become undone before you. How many of you, you know, sharing in a life group and, or a group of, of friends and uh, someone's sharing just a really deep sorrow in their life? And you just stare at the ground. And as you're thinking and hearing all the pain, all you're thinking about is, is are they going to be done soon? It is so uncomfortable to hear them share. And what's going through your mind is when they're done sharing their sorrow and done crying, what can I say to them to help make them feel better? The thing on our mind is just, how can I stop this pain? There's like this unspoken rule. Don't make eye contact with someone who's crying. 
It's uncomfortable. Stare at the ground, let them finish, and then move on to the next thing. You know, when someone's sick or mourning or brokenhearted, all you want to do is make them feel better. All you want to do is stop the hurting. You say, what can I do to stop them from hurting? What can I do to stop them from crying? We condition our children to think like this often. Don't cry. You're bothering everyone. Here's some candy. You wave things, try to tell them a joke just to get them to stop. Just stop feeling uncomfortable because when you're uncomfortable, it makes me uncomfortable. It's culturally unfashionable to lament. It's culturally out of style to express our sorrow. And therefore, the language of lament is not only uncomfortable for us, but we've lost the ability to express one of our most powerful languages with God, the language of lament. We're so quick to look at the bright side of things, so quick to give empty promises. Don't worry, I'm sure you'll get pregnant again. You'll be a mother one day. I'm sure it'll happen. You'll find somebody. You'll get a job that you love. You're a good person and, and you're talented. Something will come along. I'm sure a lot of people will come to faith because of the death of your loved one. We're so quick just to give promises so that they stop feeling bad about their situation. Most people are afraid of lament. It's messy. It's, it's risky. It's too open, too honest. You're showing too much of your heart to people when you share your pain. So here's what the language of lament is. Here's a really brief and simple definition. Lament is speaking to God honestly about our pain. That's what it is. It's speaking to God honestly about our pain. It directs our emotions by prayerfully vocalizing to God our hurt, our frustrations, our questions, even our doubts, our complaints. I wonder how many Christians have just simply stopped or never even begun to talk to God, to speak to God about their pain. Silence in the midst of grief is a soul killer. It isolates us to a desert, a spiritual desert. I wonder, I wonder who here, maybe you have stopped talking to God altogether. Maybe you're feeling pain and you've gone through hardship. Maybe you're one of those people who have just given God the silent treatment. Maybe you just don't know what to say. You lack the words, the vocabulary. I hope you'll be encouraged as we begin to wrestle with Psalm 88. We're going to be talking about the language of lament. And I hope that as, as we encounter this, you will be encouraged to pray again, especially at your worst, especially when you have no words. And Psalm 88 shows us how to do it. I want to learn how with you. What we want to do in this passage is look at the vocabulary of lament, the practice of lament, and then the good news of lament. Uh, first, we're given a vocabulary of, of lament. When learning any language, you're, you, you are given the, the building blocks of a language, and the building blocks of every language are its, are its words, its vocabulary. Uh, for myself, learning biblical uh, Greek and Hebrew is an intimidating and daunting task, but understanding the vocabulary and having a list of words to learn makes it quite manageable. Words are the building blocks. For instance, in the New Testament, there's over, just over 5,000 words. 5,000 words that make up the entire New Testament. It's a lot of words to memorize. But 300 words are used with such frequency that if you memorize 300 words, you would know 80% of the New Testament. So many words are used with such frequency that if you just memorize these building blocks, you could read the Bible in the New Testament and come across 80% of the words and know 
what it's saying. And if you doubled that to 600 words, you'd learn over 90%, almost all of the words. Lament is, if lament is vital to the language of God's people, we need to understand the words to use and the vocabulary, the right words to say. Here are the building blocks, the vocabulary of lament. The first are the questions. The questions, we're talking about who, when, where, why. These are the questions of lament. Why is this happening? God, where are you? When will you answer me? Who will help me? You can also throw in words like do, is, and are. Do you work, the psalmist says, do you work wonders? For the dead, the psalmist asks, is, you, is your steadfast love declared to the grave? Are your wonders known in the darkness? If you scan through Psalm 88, you'll see almost half of all of those phrases are questions. The building blocks of our lament and communicating our pain to God are asking questions. Why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me in verse 14? Do you feel the vocabulary in those phrases? Do you feel the pain? Do you, do you feel the sorrow in those words? Why do you cast your face from me? In the midst of struggle, the psalmist feels that, that God is distant. Have you ever felt distant in the, with God in the midst of pain, that God felt far off? But the psalmist actually takes it a, a, a step further. Not only says, why are you distant? He's saying, it moves to accusation. He says, why are you hiding from me? Why are you playing games with me? It seems as if you are playing hide and seek. I'm looking for you, but you are going out of your way to hide from me. It's okay to ask questions like that. Do you feel permission to ask questions like that? God, why have you been silent? What are you going to do to make this better? Why do you seem to be ignoring my suffering? The building blocks of our lament are our questions that we are free to ask to God. Another building block of lament are our frustrations and complaints. The frustrations and complaints, of course, are the kind of the central focus of all lament. This is where we find out the motivation of the psalmist to, that motivates him to prayer. Do you see the frustrations and complaints here? I have no strength. I feel overwhelmed. I feel helpless. He says, your wrath weighs heavy on me. You've caused my friends to betray me. There's a pattern here in the Psalms where it's I, 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 you, you, you. He says, here's what's happening to me. Here's all the things that I feel. And then here's all the things you're not doing. Here's all the negative things I feel that you are doing. Here's what's happening to me. And then here's how you're responding. After we come to God in prayer, the next step is to bring our frustrations and complaints to Him, even if our complaints are against God. Of course, I'm sure you feel freedom to go to God in prayer and express your complaints about other people, right? It's easy. You never feel guilty about that. I'm sharing my, my complaint. God, I'm complaining about my wife, my husband. I'm complaining about my kids, my work. I'm complaining about uh, my neighbors. I'm complaining about my health. But do you feel that you can come to God and complain to Him even if He's the one that you feel is to blame. That's what the psalmist is doing. Now, maybe you feel some tension here. Maybe you feel a little more uncomfortable to do something like that. No one likes a complainer, right? No one likes a complainer. What do we say? You get what you get and you don't throw a fit. Right? That's what they say in, in my daughter's preschool. And I like that phrase. That's a good phrase. I like, I, you know, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. Be content, be thankful, be courageous, Wipe the tears out of your eyes, stand up straight, 
don't whine, don't complain. This is what we tell people. This is what has been told to us. We don't know how to fit the language of lament into our categories because we are told to be thankful in all circumstances. We are told that no matter what happens and whatever comes our way, that we are to stand up straight, to find the, the silver lining, and to trust in God. Is complaining always wrong? It can't be. It can't be always wrong. Not only do we have permission to complain, but we have been given permission to complain creatively, artistically. Don't be sad. Be creatively sad. Don't complain to God. Be like artistically, like make this like a craft. Let me give you some examples. Use metaphors for your sadness. Don't just go to God in prayer and say, God, I'm angry. It's not God saying, flesh that out for a little bit. Talk about how angry you are. Verse 5. I feel like, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. Here's what he's saying. God, I feel like we went out to battle together, the battle of life. And we went out with all of your people and, and everyone was slain and everyone's killed. And I look upon the, the battlefield and everyone's laying down dying. And the fog has set in and the enemy is approaching. And I look around and my comforter and my general and my protector is gone. I look around for you and you're nowhere to be found and you, let, you, you ran off and you left me out on this battlefield among the dead to fend for myself. Now we're complaining. It's not enough just to say, I feel, I feel alone. Let's look at another one, verse 17. Your assaults surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me altogether. Water is not only powerful, it's, it's destructive, but it, it, it makes its way into the smallest crevices. You know that, right? Something needs to be watertight, airtight. And if it's not, water will find a way into the smallest cracks to destroy, to rot, to mold, and to ruin. And what the psalmist is saying is that not only do I feel drowned and I feel choked out by my sorrow, but I feel spiritually and emotionally wet all over. My sadness and your wrath hangs on me so tight that I feel like there's not, a, there's, not a, there's not a place in my heart and in my soul that isn't soaked with sadness. Now we're complaining. There's something right and helpful about regularly laying out the specifics of our pain to God. We are given permission. We are given words to use. And, and most of us have been used, or what most of us have, have learned or have been taught to suppress our most unpleasant feelings, particularly sorrow. And we may have to unlearn this. It, we don't have a category for Psalm 88 in our language with God. Because we have been told to not feel this way, and it's not good to feel this way. That when we are uh, wounded, when we are grieving that we are to find words of hope and courage. We see none of that in this psalm. So because we need to unlearn what we have been taught, we need to learn how to practice. We have to practice this. What's the practice of lament? Let's look more into this language of lament. The practice of lament. When the bottom of your marriage falls out, when the bottom of your family, your career, your health, your nation your dreams. When the bottom falls out, what do you do? What do you say? Where do you go? 
when everything feels like it's falling apart and becoming ruined. You know, most people, especially or including Christians, respond with fear, anger, or despair. When the bottom falls out, we respond in fear. Fear sounds like I need to be much more careful next time so that this doesn't happen again. I need to be more thoughtful and I need to avoid that kind of hurt. Anger, how dare they do that to me? I'm never going to let anyone do that to me ever again. Despair, hopeless, emotionally numb. We say things like, you know what? doesn't matter what happens to me in my life. I just don't feel anything anymore. I feel dead inside. Some experience all three at the same time. The psalmist shows us that this is not just the building blocks of lament, but it's a pra- he shows us the practice of lament. In verse 13, after he questions God and after he complains and airs out his frustrations to God, he says, But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Here the psalmist turns his powerless position into a platform to call out to God. Where he feels at the bottom of the pit and in the grave, he uses that as a platform to cry out to God. His blunt complaining and bold questions is an opportunity that he sees to redirect his heart. Not just ignore, not ignoring his sorrow, but redirecting it to God. Rather than allowing his painful circumstance to rule him and creating bitterness and despair, he lays out his pain fully for God. He says, in the morning my prayer comes to you. Some days you're, you'll wake up and you'll feel strong, and you'll feel put together, and you'll feel like you can take on the day. And then you'll go to bed and you'll wake up the next morning and you'll wake up feeling defeated and frustrated and hopeless. And you'll be reminded of the pain of your life that you once felt good about that's still there and now all of a sudden you're defeated again. You ever have days like that? You have a really great day and then you wake up the next morning and you say, oh, it's still there. I'm crushed again. In my experience, when I'm struggling and when I experience fear or despair or grief or anger, the first thoughts in the morning are the most darkest, are the darkest. I actually warm up as the day goes on. You know, talking with people, getting on, to being distracted by work or other things, I feel better as the day goes on. The best, I'm the best version of myself at night. I feel sorry for all of you get to see me in the morning. This is, as, this is, the, this is you've seen me at my worst. And so, that's not even half true. Um, <clears throat> in your experience, are your thoughts most burdensome in the morning when you wake up or at night before you go to bed? or even at 2 p.m., <laughs> then that's when you should bring your laments to God. What the psalmist is saying is that when those thoughts fill my heart to where I can't even breathe and I feel choked out by pain, that's when I lay out my pain before you fully. That's when I come to you. Few things in our life are more unhelpful than being assaulted and discouraged right when we wake up. Isn't that painful? It's like, I don't even want to put my feet on the floor. I just want to stay in bed. It's that feeling when you get, when you wake up and you open your eyes and you kind of wish you didn't, kind of wish you didn't wake up. It's kind of that feeling when you go to bed after just weary from the day and brokenhearted by the pain in your heart and you kind of wish that maybe when you go to sleep you won't wake up. Those are the times that we lay out our pain to God. Those are the times when we tell him exactly how, our, how we're feeling with no filter. We come boldly to him. Through the darkest time of the day, the psalmist learned that the value of simply telling the Lord what was running through his heart 
was huge. It was therapy for him. It was comforting. That he's, I'm going to tell you what's going on in my mind when I feel like I can't even breathe. Some days you might wake up and just list all the things that are causing you grief. How can you practice this? It's good. Get a journal. And, and, and you wake up and you feel heavy. Then lay out your complaints to God. Lay out your frustrations. Lay out your pains. List them down on paper. Honey, you're making a grocery list? No, I'm just listing all the things that bother me. Okay, am I on that list? <laughs> you can do that before you go to bed. And the last thing you want to do is tell people how you feel. You can lay out your pain fully before God. You can practice this. We don't know how to do it. We feel like, well, that's not the purpose of prayer. That's not the purpose of, of, of uh, journaling. That's not, how, that's not a good way to start the day or a good way to finish the day. You see, here's a word of caution. When it comes to practicing the language of lament, while you should specifically lay out your complaints and your griefs, you shouldn't get stuck there. Complaining is never meant to be an end in itself. Uh, in other words, lament does not give you excuse just to wallow in your complaining. Prayer that sees complaint as an end in itself is like going to a doctor just for diagnosis and not healing. So there's something unique about a, a Christian complaining. There's something unique about Christian lament that isn't just whining to God. You're not meant to linger in complaint. A diagnosis without a cure just leads to further despair. Right? Complaining for the sake of complaining and airing our grievances, it just makes us feel worse. But a diagnosis is still critical to the cure. Lament is not... Like biblical lament and Christian lament, it's not just complaining to the wind. Here's the big difference. It's actually complaining to God. It's complaining to God. One who listens, one who cares. It's not just shouting out our frustrations to anyone who will hear. It's a, it's a Godward complaining. Is there, is there suffering in your, your life that you have not given voice to, that you haven't been able to give words to? Is there pain in your life that you just don't know how to express? Psalm 88 gives us vocabulary, gives us permission to use questions and frustrations and complaints. We, we, uh, we bring our complaints for the purpose of moving towards him. He says, when I wake up, I bring my complaints to you. I bring my prayers, my frustrations, my pain. We bring our complaints to the Lord for the purpose of moving towards Him. Be honest. Talk to God about your struggles. Even if it's messy, even if it's embarrassing, let biblical complaining push you toward God in prayer. If you don't, you will end up in a spiritual desert. You will try to suppress those feelings. You'll try to manage those griefs and it will just make you isolated in your own pain. We ask God for help. When we do this, when we honestly open up our soul, we actually provide a doorway for lament to do what it's meant to do. And that is to ask God for help and to trust that he's able to rescue us. And so we have here the biblical 
building blocks of our vocabulary. We have the permission to, to lay out our grief before God. We have a practice of coming to God uh, when, we, when we are in the most pain. And, and lastly, why don't we talk about the good news of lament? When we talk about the, the good news of, of doing this, where in the psalm do we see the good news of lament? I'm actually asking because I don't see it. <laughs> do we want, you want to read that? Did you, re, did you hear that when James was reading that? Do you want to read it again? Do you want to glance over it again? I'll give you $5 if you can find good news in here. This is such a painful, I'm just, I'm re, I rescind that offer. It's, this is such a painful, painful psalm. The prayer ends so abruptly with despair. Look at the last, the last thing he utters to God. My companions have become darkness. What does that mean? He says, darkness is my only friend. Don't you think that maybe the rest of this psalm got lost somewhere? It's 18 verses of him laying before God the pain of his heart, and then it ends with no word of encouragement, no word of hope, no word of comfort at all. Darkness is my only friend. Do you feel like that? Do you feel that when you pray, you have to kind of tidy up your prayers, that you have to say something, that you can't just pray to God and say, this is so hard for me, I wish it weren't this way, and then saying amen and trying to move on with your day? Do you feel like you have to kind of appeal to God's mercy and appeal to his goodness and his love and provision for your life? Do you have to appeal to his sovereignty and do you have to kind of commit and, and admit to yourself that things will get better and you know, all things will work good for those who are called according to his purpose, for those who are in Christ Jesus? Do you feel like you have to say that and kind of look on the bright side of things? This, this follower doesn't. I, wa- I want to give you some good news of lament. Um, not found specifically here, but learned as, as we have a fuller, uh, fuller commentary in the scriptures and, and, and a fuller sense of, of how God uses pain in our life. Here's some ways that, that there is good news to consider. I want to give you a few. First is that lament wakes, wakes up a heart that has stopped listening to God. C.S. Lewis has famously said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Lament is, is a way of grace. It's a, way of, it's a means of God's mercy to us to wake us up. Those who have stopped listening, those who have gone deaf to God, those who have failed to bring their pain to God, God makes it unbearable for us to be in isolation with our pain. And in this way, lament is a gift. Lament is, is a way, a, a mercy that stirs in our heart to care about the pain in our world and the pain in our own life. It's such a great temptation to grow in apathy, just not really paying much attention to how we feel. The, it's such a great temptation to say, well, yeah, I'm hurting, but everybody's hurting, and you just, need to, you just need to keep moving. You just need to keep going. You just need to kind of not focus on that and you need to move forward. Lament is God's way of getting our attention because he loves us. He cares for us. It's a great temptation to grow in apathy and not pay attention. And meanwhile, sin that breeds in our heart and in our life, when we don't deal with that pain, it can lead to irreversible damage in our life. It can lead to irreversible damage in our hearts and in the lives of others. 
when we don't lay our pain before God, but simply stuff it and isolate it, it can lead to greater pain. And so lament is good news because it wakes up a heart that has stopped listening to God. Lament also prepares us for suffering. Maybe suffering. Maybe you're not suffering right now, and I praise God for that, and you should praise God as well. But here's some good news. You will. Wow, this is really depressing. It, it is. You're not suffering now. Look on the bright side of things. It'll probably get worse than tomorrow. Now, I understand. Maybe you're, you're listening to this sermon and, and, and you're thinking, gosh, I, I, this really isn't for me. You know, some, some sermons will be like that. Some sermons, uh, some passages in Scripture you will read and you'll hear and you'll say, I don't see how it applies. And maybe that's you today. But I can go so far as to promise you that there will be a day when Psalm 88 is exactly what you need. Maybe it is right now. Maybe you're there right now. And when that happens, when that day comes and you feel broken and feel filled with sorrow, you'll be tempted to despair, you'll be tempted to confusion. And so it may not be a grace for you today, but it is a grace for you tomorrow. And the psalm would remind us that those who follow God will have times of, of most intense suffering and most intense struggle and most intense feelings of feeling abandoned by God. We know the Christian always struggles against sin and the forces of evil in our life. For we, we do not do the, the good that we should do and the evil that we don't want to do, we keep doing. Paul says that there's a conflict within our heart that being, being made in the image of God and having a, a sin nature that still, that still influences and tempts, tempts us, he says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. The Bible will tell us that we have a war within us that will lead us to despair, confusion, and feeling abandoned by God and we will break and suffer in this world. And Psalm 88 is a perfect grace and mercy for us. It will prepare us for suffering because when we do, we're given permission to cry out to God. We are given permission to be honest with God and bold to lay out our complaints to him. Another good news that lament is, is lament teaches us to offer authentic prayers. Let's return to that abrupt ending of the psalm. Why does the psalmist end so abruptly? I mean, why does he do that? In verse 18, he just says, Hello, darkness, my old friend, and then he's done, right? He just, he ends it right there. Because I think the psalmist refuses, come back with me, people. He refuses to spiritualize his suffering. He refuses easy comfort. He refuses to zip through his suffering and to come up with an easy explanation for why he is suffering. But at the same time, courageously, he refuses to distance himself from his suffering because it's uncomfortable. And so here we see the tension for God's people to live within that none of us want to live in. Where is that place? It's that place somewhere in between not zipping through our pain to find an easy answer out, and it's also not ignoring our pain just because it's so painful. We are invited into, we're actually just shown, we're not invited into it, we are in there. We are actually shown the tense place where every Christian lives trying to just have the courage to be there in the middle, saying, I don't want to refuse, I don't want to distance myself from my pain because I, I just merely don't want to be at pain anymore. And I also don't 
want to just get through this with empty promises. Finding an explanation for a quick solution for grief will bypass God's desired spiritual growth in your life. Finding a quick answer and a quick remedy and the right words to say to make you feel better, it will bypass spiritual maturity in your life. Do you feel a sense that you need to, do you feel that your prayers are really formal? Do you feel kind of a sense that your prayers need to be formal when you come to God and pray? Not all those are wrong at, the, at times, of course. Religion tells us that we need to get our words together and bring ourselves together to God with polished words that are said clearly and said prudently and said responsibly before God. Now imagine a child comes to you. If your children are grown, perhaps they're grown and older, imagine what it was like when they did come to you. And it's a certain situation where they run to you and it's, they're in obvious distress. They're in obvious pain or confusion or frustration. And they're trying to tell you something. They're trying to get it out, and they're just not quite getting it out in a clear way. And they're, they're out of breath, and they run to you, and nothing makes sense, and they're skipping words. They're not using any adjectives or anything like that. All of their words are verbs, right? Hit, hurt, fell, bleeding. You know, they're just saying things like that, and you're trying to piece it together. You're trying to piece together their story and how you can help. And here's what you say. Wait, 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 wait. Calm down. Gather yourself. Find your words. Now tell me the whole story from start to finish in a way I can understand. Anybody do that? You know what you're saying? You know what it sounds like when you do that? It sounds like, don't tell me how you feel. Tell me how you should be feeling. Tell me how I want you to be feeling. Make this easier for me so that I'm not uncomfortable by your pain. God never tells us to gather our words before we come to him in prayer. God never tells us to use our big boy or big girl words. He never tells us to tell the story in a perfect way that he can understand. You know what he does? He simply opens his arms and he says, I'm listening, tell me everything. Tell me how you're feeling, start wherever you want. I can handle it. I can handle your pain. I can handle your discomfort. I can handle your imperfect way of talking to me. Do you feel like your, your prayers are too formal? Do you feel like you're going to talk to God, like you're going into a boardroom to lay out your proposal before God so that he will help you and you've got to sell yourself really good? Do you feel like you can come to God like a child, skipping words, crying through your pain? You can. We see it. We see that God opens his arms to it. Here's Mark Vrogrop in Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy, a book I, I recommend to those who are struggling. Uh, he says this in his book, Part of the grace of lament is the way it invites us to pray boldly even when we are bruised badly. Psalm 88 is, a, is, 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 a, is hope for the bruised Christian. It's hope for the beaten to a pulp Christian. It's, it's, it's hope for the Christian who can't speak. We come boldly. We say the words that come to our mind. Is there anything that has stopped you from asking God uh, to do in your life? Is there anything that you have stopped asking God for in your life? Have the pain and circumstances or disappointments of unanswered prayer and frustrations in your life uh, caused you to be silent before God and you just, you just stopped speaking? Uh, Mark in his book also says the first language of the Christian should not be strategy but prayer. 
The first language of the Christian should not be strategy. How do I fix this? How do I get this right? What's the right theology to feel? What's the right answer? What could God possibly be doing in this bad thing? How will he make this good? All of those things and all those questions may come, but that's not the first thing for the Christian. It ought to be prayer. You've been betrayed and hurt and lied to. What, what if your first response to the pain in your life is not listening to a how-to TED talk, but what if it was a prayer of lament? What if it was this, I hate that this is going on. I am crushed that, the, that I feel this way. Why have you let this happen to me? How will you fix this? It's as if you have forgotten your love for me. It's as if you have betrayed me. It's as if you're hiding from me. You feel uncomfortable saying that, don't you? It should be our first language, and we, we are not fluent in this language. And yet it's such an important language to speak to God. Uh, another one, and lastly, uh, lament is a beautiful platform for the gospel. So when we give expression and we give words to our greatest struggles, uh, Psalm 88 actually comforts us in an unlikely way. It is true. There's not something uh, hidden in here that I'm going to show. I'm not going to do any magic with Psalm 88 and show you the good news in here. But in a way, when we're honest and we give honest expression to our pain, um, lament reminds us that there's actually something deeply broken in this world that we can't fix. And what that does is it actually gives us a pathway to the gospel. It shows us a roadmap to Christ. That pain and that sadness that you feel, the things that you wish were different in this world, I'm going to tell you right now, it's not a figment of your imagination. You're not pretending. It's, it's, um, you can't ignore it somehow. You can't manage it. You can't make it better. It's not going away just by ignoring it. Time does not heal all wounds. And there's nothing that you can do to outrun it. I told you this this is a really happy psalm. But in doing so, when we're honest about our need, when we're honest about the reality of our brokenness and the brokenness in the world and not letting ourselves ignore the pain, we are giving a roadmap to the gospel in a beautiful way. This intense prayer of sorrow opens the door for us to see the one who is called the man of sorrows. You see, Hebrews chapter 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. What What is going on here? When we come to this psalm and we give expression to our great pain, we see every sin every pain, every tear, every, every discouragement, every loss and every grief that we have ever felt in our life has been embraced fully by Jesus in his life, on the cross, and in the grave. You see, when we utter words in verse 3 where we say, my soul is in trouble, when we are in the, in the first thing in the morning, we're journaling and we say, my soul is troubled, We are to be reminded of Jesus before he was crucified when he cried out to God in prayer and he said, my soul is troubled. When we utter the words in verse 6 and say, I feel like I've been thrown into a pit in the darkness of death, we're to remember that Jesus was thrown into a tomb. He was left in darkness to rot. He was 
dead and fully dead for three days, when we feel that the light has come out of our soul, we are to be reminded that Jesus was thrown down into the pit of death to be left all alone. When we feel that God's wrath and judgment or discipline weighs heavy on us, we are to hear Jesus saying on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then sarcastically, and maybe with some frustration, we utter the words in verse 10 and 11. And I think these are actually said in a kind of a sarcastic way when he says, you work wonders for the dead. Do you give love to those who are in the grave? Can you really bring life out of nothing? Can you really bring new things out of garbage? To which we hear God reply, yes, I do. That's exactly what I do. You see, we're, we're not given the answer. We see more fully. The, he utters questions of despair. God, can you make things new? Does your blessing come to those who feel dead inside? When we feel full of despair, is there hope beyond this? And then he just ends. And we know the answers to those questions. The questions are, yes, God does. How? He does because all of those feelings, every pain and sin and sorrow and grief and even judgment and wrath of God, all of it was poured out on Jesus. He became our sin. He became our grief. He became our sorrow. And he went to the cross and he didn't just die, but he defeated death and sin He rose from the grave so that we can bring the worst that we have to offer to him and he is not intimidated by it. It's so that he can open up his arms and say, I'm here and I'm listening. Tell me everything. It's so that we can find safety in the comfort of his love rather than cast into despair because of our trouble. We hear God reply, yes. Yes, my good does come to the grave. My blessings do go down to the pit. I do make life out of sorrow. He shows us in Jesus. Lay out your pain. Lay out your grief. He's listening. He cares for you. And he's good.